Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Pudang namang sanghang namasam Well, it's been a while since I've given any kind of a Dhamma talk. I feel like I'm out of shape. I don't know how to start, really. Here we are. It's the first day of February. We're a month into the winter retreat. Things are bumping along very nicely, it seems like. Community's practicing well. Not much disturbance. Things are good. It's important to remind yourself that when things are good, it won't last. So that you don't get attached to it. It's really easy to serve get comfortable, settle in, get cozy with your routine, and uh, start attaching or cathecting, if you will, to that circumstance. Find a comfortable circumstance and everything seems just the way you like it. If you don't remember, that it arises due to causes and conditions. It hasn't always been this way. It won't always be this way in the future. If you let yourself forget that, then you're kind of setting yourself up. Mm-hmm. I did a little reading. Uh, I'm reading a book. It's called Greek Buddha, by the author's name is Beckwith, he's a scholar. And his thesis is that the uh, Greek philosopher Pyro was influenced by Buddhist practitioners and teachers when he was traveling with Alexander the Great in India. In the second or third century BC. And uh, what's interesting is to see Pyro's way of articulating the three characteristics of all conditioned things. So we uh, we have this teaching in Buddhism, the three lakana, the three characteristics. And traditionally, that's said to be dukkha, uh, anicca, dukkha, anatta. So there's a kind of order to it. 
because things are impermanent, um, they are unsatisfactory. Because they're impermanent and unsatisfactory, they cannot be self. This is a, a canonical catechism on those three characteristics. Uh, Pyro puts it differently. He, he says, uh, rather than saying that all things are suffering or all things are dukkha, he focuses more on the mental side of this, makes it more explicit. And the Greek's a little hard to pick apart for me, but it's it's more along the lines of all conclusions that the mind could draw about any Uh, any mental phenomenon, any experience, any viewpoint, any stance, any conclusions of mind can draw are um, not true. (laughs) They're they're fundamentally uh, unsupported other than by opinion. So that the, the mind's tendency to, to make a view out of anything is, uh, in a way, indefensible. And uh, so it's it's kind of a uh, almost a combination of dukkha and anicca. But he has another word for uncertainty as well. The reason I'm bringing this up is I was, uh, we were listening to Lumpur, Viridamu, read Ajahn Chah, chapters from Ajahn Chah books for the first few weeks of the, of the retreat. And it's very familiar territory, very, uh, I've heard these, I read these and I've heard these um, chapters out of these books. Uh, multiple times. And every time I hear it, I hear a little something new. But I've, I've discovered over the years that hearing it lots of different ways can be very helpful. That there isn't really a fixed way. This is one of the truths about the Dhamma. Is that there's no, uh, even though we'd like it to be this way, we'd like to have a a black and white received teaching that we can totally rely on. Even the Dhamma itself has a certain kind of ambiguity built into it. A certain uh, degree of um, interpretation is required. It's almost as if once you think that you've got it, you're probably you're probably wrong. <laughs> and it's probably time to rethink your stance. And this, uh, this way of relating to experience that everything the mind draws a conclusion about is not really very well supported, can seem uh, a bit intimidating at first. But in a way, it's also kind of liberating 
because if you think uh, something is uh, bad, like somebody moved your shoes, or somebody insulted you, or you lost some money in the stock market, or whatever it is that happens, if you have an attitude or a belief or a view or an opinion that it's bad, um, and then you discover there's this alternative way of looking at it, is that it's uncertain, that it's it's not, it doesn't it doesn't really have badness in it. The mind imposes the judgment that, but the the, the event itself is is. Uh, well, it's assembled from the mind out of the context of the world and created into a narrative, which includes a feeling tone that we label bad. So if you lost money in the market, there's, a, there's some attachment that the mind has towards the money that it imagined that it possessed before and now it doesn't possess. And so the whole thing is kind of a mental creation. And when you bear this in mind, it's the the flip side of not letting yourself get comfortable in your routine. So when you see that your routine, uh, if you get comfortable in your daily routine and the way that your things are going in your life and you sort of get sleepy about it and you assume that nothing will change, that everything will stay the same, uh, then you, in a way you've sort of fallen asleep to the truth, which is that it's not really certain. You can't really count on it. It's not really a refuge. And uh, there's a danger in taking things for granted. The danger being um, that you will come to rely, to rest, to count on, to take refuge in things which are inherently unstable. And so when you remind yourself of this, then you put a little a little distance between you and the thing that you're pretending to rely on. You're reminding yourself of its uncertainty. And you're, you're waking up to the truth of its inherent inability to create a refuge for you. And that's what makes it unsatisfactory or dukkha. Even though you like it. And the flip side of that is that when something bad happens, um, you can remind yourself of the same thing. That it's it's bad only because the mind is labeling it bad. The mind's gotten attached to some alternative. And the more you wake up to this, uh, the more continuously you can bear it in mind, the less grasping the mind does at the seeming graspables in the world. That's another uh, another way of looking at dukkha or anicca, uncertainty, is the ungraspability of things, or the, uh, the refugelessness of things. We can't take refuge uh, with any any hope of success in the things of, of our minds, of our experience, uh, and of the world itself. And when we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, 
as practitioners, as followers of the Buddhist teaching. And those refuges are are not really taking refuge in the sense of getting comfortable and counting on, but more like a, a pledge of a kind of willingness to be vigilant, willingness to uh, sign up for being awake. So taking refuge in the Buddha, the word Buddha comes from Bodhi, being awake. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, it's this awakening principle, rather than a, 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 a historic figure or um, the idea of the Buddha's life. Those things can be inspirational, but really we're, we're, we're taking refuge in this principle that the more we align ourselves with the truth and continually remember the truth, that things aren't really reliable, certain, trustworthy, continuous, perfect, perfectible. And it's perilous to count on things, the phenomena of the world, the phenomena of experiences, to count on them to give the mind a safe place. The truth is it's not really safe in that sense. Real, it really isn't a place to rest. But when you take refuge in this truth, and you just simply remind yourself of it quite regularly. So this is an interesting thing about the teaching of Hiro. Uh, there's only fragmentary bits and pieces of his teaching, but uh, the way he puts it is that every phenomenon every dispute, every uh, judgment call that comes your way. Simply look at it and say to it that it, it might be this way or it might be went that way. It could either be this way or it could be that way. There's no real telling how it is. Which is a very, maybe a Greek way of putting uncertainty. Not necessarily true. The mind draws conclusions. But if you remind yourself that the mind's conclusions are are conditioned and that they're partial and never really reflective of some sort of externally existing truth, then in a sense you really are becoming more aligned with the truth. You take your own judgments to be uncertain, partial. Uh, incomplete, uh, provisional, subject to change. And because of that, you can't really grip them tightly. You can't hold on to them. And so you're kind of holding your experience in a very loose way. You're not grasping uh, at views, opinions, beliefs, ideas, stances about yourself, about the world, about others, about experiences about the past and the future. So even though these things appear in the mind and they seem to have a concreteness to them, a certainty to them, by simply reminding yourself that the certainty is uh, only apparent, something that the mind imbues these things with, and that their true nature 
is of an uncertain, uh, imperfect or somewhat insubstantial, mentally created quality, then you can sort of relax around them. You don't need to defend them. You don't need to push them away. So if something bad happens, it's just something that happens. And you accept it without uh, making a judgment about it. It doesn't have to be bad. It just is. Uh, You can take practical steps to make things as uh, graceful, as harmonious as possible. But when things come along that you can't really control, if you get sick or uh, you lose something that you you cherished, aging comes along and makes you... uh, Put up with things that you'd rather not put up with. Uh, then you're, you, by training yourself in this way, you become much more able to roll the punches, so to speak. Life doesn't push you over because um, you don't really take things so seriously. So this, um, what Pyro is suggesting, is that everything that comes to you should be addressed this way. And uh, it reminded me of Ajahn Chah. He likes to say, my nay. Uncertain. That's how we're putting it. Not sure. And so if everything that comes your way, everything that you have an opinion about, maybe that's the way Pyro would put it, everything that provokes an opinion in you, like, uh, I don't like this, or this is bad, or I like this, I want this, this will make me happy. I should do this, I shouldn't do that. Uh, every one of these stances that the mind can take should also include this little uh, addendum. Not sure, uncertain, provisional. And by looking at it that way, then you really are, in effect, taking refuge in the Buddha. The Buddha and his teaching the principle of awakening, and this doctrine of confronting our moment-to-moment reality with a mind that's framing experience in terms of these three characteristics. Things are, are not capable of yielding satisfaction. Even though we might get gratification, we might find comfort, we might find pleasure, but we can't find satisfaction. And this is just the nature of things. It's not that we're doing something wrong. It's not that the world is refusing to give us what it should give us. We're only getting what the world has to offer. And the world's goods are all of this same flavor not really capable of generating satisfaction. And our search for satisfaction, in effect, is problematic. Because as long as we're looking for satisfaction, we're we're driven to go trying to find it. We're bound to uh, pursue things and chase after them, looking for something that we think is possible to get. But when you realize that it's not really the nature of this, 
and you keep reminding yourself of that, then this the vitality of that pursuit, the urgency of that pursuit fades away. And then things carry on anyway. But the mind still wants satisfaction, but the drive to try to get it, the belief that it's gettable, becomes less compelling. Because you just keep reminding yourself of the truth of things, which is that they aren't capable of yielding that. And they're not capable of yielding it because they don't really have uh, characteristics of possessibility. You can't really nail things down. Nothing's really static. This is part of the anatta. No essence there. The mind likes essences. It likes to think that things are concrete and have hard edges. That the, uh, the, uh, the things can be uh, nailed down, made certain, can be um, categorized. And you can impose categories on phenomena. Your mind does that all the time. But if you believe in those categories, then you're again you're kind of buying into the illusion. So by just just saying that to your mind, uh, my nay or I'm not sure or um, could be this or could be that, maybe yes, maybe no. However it works for you to put it, especially when there's something at stake. You think you're about to get what you want, <laughs> or you think you're about to be put, uh, confronted with something you don't want. When there's something at stake, that's the time when Dhamma can really help you. And this is the this is the way that we take refuge is in our practice. We practice by confronting our lives with this viewpoint, with this stance. Uh, meditation is part of it. It helps build this quality of mind, of being able to bear witness to without getting entangled in the content of experience. And all the other practices, the Eightfold Noble Path describes it quite well. Right view, right effort, right mindfulness, right wisdom, right concentration, Right speech, right action, right livelihood. There's an ethical quality there. There's a training quality there. And they all fit together. They all adhere to each other. They all support each other. So wisdom comes out of stilling the mind and watching carefully. Ethics allow the mind to settle and not be pushed around. It takes a certain amount of restraint and energy and mindfulness in order to practice ethics well. Mindfulness and energy are required for concentration, for wisdom to arise. So when we take this on, this is the way that we take refuge in, in our the refuge that's available to us in our lives. Hearing it in different ways can touch different things in us. When we hear it from Ajahn Chah, when we hear it from Ajahn Sumedho, uh, when we hear it from Pyro of Ellis, 
The messages are the same, but sometimes it can it can strike us in a different way and, and open up a new um, possibility for understanding how this works. Not how it works in theory, but how it works in your life, in your direct experience. The, the feeling of your mind, the moods that your mind has to put up with, how your body feels, how your day goes, the habitual, redundant thinking that your mind does, and the way that you relate to that. This is the ordinary content of our human lives, and all of it's subject to teaching us. It can all be used for grist for the mill, as it were. It's all valid practice material. You can look at anything that's happening at any moment and say, what is this really? What's the mind doing now? Is that really true? Is there more to the story? Is it certain? So asking this kind of open-ended questions isn't a search for answers. It's a search for, uh, it's a training of the mind to be flexible and um, alert and inquisitive. Because ultimately, seeing how the mind creates suffering is what allows you to free the mind from suffering. So we're very fortunate we've got great circumstances to practice in. Two more months of winter retreat, staring us in the face. We just take it one day at a time. Take it each day one moment at a time. Stay in the present. Don't worry about the future. Keep watching what happens. Keep practicing. And then you honor the Buddha. Dhamma and the Sangha, you honor and, and use properly the requisites that you've been given. You express your gratitude towards the donors for everything that they've given us that allows us to practice here. And that's a noble way to live. So I'll leave those words for your consideration. And the land of the water, Sadhu,